What do you think of when you hear the word density? The word itself means compactness of pieces coming together. But what about in terms of art? When I think of density in art, I think of busy paintings that have many pieces that are a part of a bigger puzzle. Density to me feels like a crowded room with little space to breathe. The busyness in our chosen artwork actually serve many purposes. They can represent idea that the artist wanted to put forward. It can also reveal deeper meanings. Yes, the details what makes the artwork so unique. All the parts work together to create an interesting and rich work of art. Hi, I'm Noelle, and I'm 13. And I'm Sun. I'm 17. And I'm Raquel. I'm 19, and we're museum ambassadors at the Fine Arts Museum here in San Francisco. In this episode, we are discussing density in art and how it can reveal the artwork's meaning. I personally love seeing density and detail in artwork. It makes me want to know more, to look closer, and gives me a chance to connect with it on a deeper level. Totally, but other people might feel overwhelmed with all the details. Throughout this podcast, think about what density means to you. How does it make you look at an artwork? In case you have no idea what a sarcophagus is, don't worry, I didn't either. Here are some facts to bring you up to speed. Roman sarcophagi are essentially coffins that were mostly used in the 2nd century, which was almost 2,000 years ago. Sarcophagi were made of stone, lead, wood, and for those with wealth, or those who could afford it, marble. We are going to discuss how each detail on the sarcophagus relates to the deceased, and how it reflects different aspects of their life. It's actually very surprising how much you can learn about a person just by setting their sarcophagus. The reason I was drawn to this piece initially when thinking of the theme density is because of all the things going on in it. There are just so many details to soak in. Something that you may be wondering is, what kind of person would have the sarcophagus? I asked Luis Chu and Renee Dreyfus, ancient art curators, how much skill had to be put into making this. And this is a very intricate and very beautiful uh, sarcophagus, um, very impressive one, uh, meant that the artist would have been a very fine sculptor working in, working in marble. What is amazing is that you get this sense of three-dimensionality on a work like, like this sarcophagus, where figures stand out in the front and others are in the back. As I say, some, some of the arms, some of the, the uh, actual um, figures are standing out away from the surface. My next wonder was, who could afford such a beautiful and luxurious thing? This sarcophagus, this burial box, uh, was... Uh, bought for, would have had to have had a lot of money. And the person for whom it was bought is the woman in that circle in the middle of the sarcophagus. And she is a noble woman. She's coming from one of the 
uh, fine Roman families that had the resources to be able to purchase a box like this. And also, and it's so extraordinary to think about, she's she's holding onto her cloak with her right hand, and in her left hand, uh, the woman holds a scroll, which is what they used for writing on, showing off in some ways that not only was this woman wealthy, but she was literate. So what I was wondering at this point was, what role did a sarcophagus have in their culture if people were willing to pay so much to have such an ornate one? Well, uh, on the one hand, it, it, these um, very intricate and very beautiful sarcophagi would be used to impress anyone. Uh, the, the actual sarcophagi um, would be placed in a niche um, and in a place where others could see it. And so much of Roman culture is kind of showing off what you can afford. The carvings and designs are of the farming year and things related to Dionysus, who's the god of wine, vegetation, and resurrection. They were very popular themes at the time. Bear figures are standing all around, holding fruits according to the season. Little, almost childlike, wingless gods similar to Cupid, are playing below with animals such as a panther, which is linked to Dionysus. The inclusion of these seasons and Greek symbols show beliefs in the constant progress of time and the nature of life, death, and the wish for rebirth. Even though this isn't exactly a narrative, you can tell that the owner was educated and held beliefs that dated back to ancient Greece. Speaking of which, how did these carvings represent their beliefs? The sarcophagus, all of these images, the ones in the front, the ones in the back, all of them have something to do with fertility. The sarcophagus also is a very strong way of depicting what is hoped for um, in the next world or in the life to come in the hereafter, just like certain times of the year, the plants grow forth, and then other times of the year, they die out. But don't worry, because they will come back again, fresh and renewed the next time around. It was hoped that the way uh, the, the um, fertility of the land and the fertility of the crops happens over a period of time. So likewise, this woman would experience a rebirth. What kind of customs would go along with it to honor the deceased? That, that stratum of, of Roman society likely would um, have, as Renee was saying, you know, there will be funeral feasts and rites and sometimes likely over... Um, you know, inside the chamber, the barrel chamber. This made me think about what people today might have to say about ancient Roman funerary practices and how that compares to what we do today. I asked student and former de Young Museum community representative Blair Thomas what they thought. How do you think these ancient sarcophagi compare to our funerary practices today? And the only thing I can really compare it to, especially here in the U.S., is having large funerals, large possession, processions with a lot of people coming and 
very ornate coffins is kind of like compared to the real world today. And I think one thing, especially now with contemporary work, is many people are not necessarily trying to show detail, trying to show like their skill, but trying to show emotions, trying to show the work that went into it. It's very interesting how we've come to that now where, you know, kind of moving away from just the Western idea of funerals, which is a very small percentage of what it actually is. And not a lot of people actually, you know, use those as their idea of what a funeral is supposed to be. And it's a very, you know, Western idea of what a funeral is supposed to be, of just a very clean, very, you know, solemn, very quiet moment when uh, many of people celebrate. They're loud, it's colorful, it's bright, there's flowers, there's songs, there's dancing, there's music, there's food, there's celebration. What are your thoughts on death? As last thoughts, just I do appreciate the passage of time that's being depicted. And I believe that's something that us here need to really start doing because I think um, as a whole, we've kind of have this idea that death isn't something that should be talked about when death is a beautiful thing and it's just the ending of, um, you know, the story, which is not a bad thing. A story cannot go on forever. Hi, it's Raquel. The density in Johnny Warakula Triparula's painting, Children's Story, Water Dreaming of Two Children, had me constantly looking at something new. I would say that's what attracted me to this piece. I felt like I couldn't look away, for if I did, I would miss something. At first glance, I wanted to capture the piece as a whole and soak it all in. I really liked the pinks and reds that were used as a highlight color, but also saw the whites, yellows, and blacks standing out. The fields and dots is separated by lines dividing them into sections with random swirls placed in different parts of the piece. I was almost distracted with all the detail that I could have missed the human-like figures in the upper left-hand corner and thought that that's how the scene was given its name. The artist, Johnny Warakula Triparulas, grew up in an Aboriginal community in a desert region in Australia that had a traditional ritual that were intended for initiated men to partake. Initiation rituals may not be shared by people outside the community, so viewers just have to accept that they can't know what it is to be initiated. Some images and ritual objects are not meant for uninitiated boys or even women to see. An art teacher named Jeffrey Barden had arrived at the settlement that Warakula lived at to teach at a school and encourage the children to paint, and this led to adults painting as well. And many of them painted stories about their ancestors and their land. Out of that, came children's story, Water Dreaming for Two Children. I asked my older sister, who's an artist, about her thoughts on children's story. One, the color stood out, and then the use of what almost looks like tiling to me. That's what I first said when I first saw this, um, that there's like a lot of dots, <laughs> um, lines. So use of like um, of type of lines and dots and such like that. But um, colors, yeah, there's like yellow, white, black, and red. Um, so just that, yeah, the use of media and how it's used. She described the piece as... At first, I would not have seen the people at all. So I, which I think is part of the reason as to why the artist did that, is to make it not super viewable and not the first thing you see. First I saw was a huge white um, swirly line in the middle. 
um, which is, I think, their way of um, distracting the viewer of what's going on. Yeah, it looks more abstract than it really does look like a scene, but once you look into it further with more time, it looks like a scene. She was really able to see the purpose of the details and use of colors that made this piece as busy as it looks. From her perspective, as an artist, she is able to react to Triparula's intentions with understanding. Now let's hear from Christina Helmick, curator in charge of the Department of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. So one of the things uh, that interested me about this piece when I saw it, most of the paintings I had seen um, that were painting, Aboriginal art paintings were on canvas. So what was interesting about this painting, this is on this composition board, and it's actually one of the earlier paintings. I had seen paintings that were created almost a decade later. So, so the first thing that interested me was um, also the scale, the scale of the composition and the material. And, and then of course, uh, with any Aboriginal painting, um, there's uh, this wonderful experience of, of trying to kind of decipher or, you know, uh, glean what you can from the composition in, in terms of what, what you make of it. What can you tell us about the dotting technique Triparula used? The, the dotting, the overdotting, the lines that you see that are so characteristic of Australian Aboriginal painting, um, these developed as a, the dotting in particular, and Johnny, um, Johnny Warnkula Japarula was one of the first to actually use the dotting and, to, and this that became described as dot paintings. And it was used to cover some of the information that they were putting on the paintings. In other words, so they were um, creating landscapes with fields of color. Uh, these circular areas might um, be features on the landscape. And so they were using the dots in a way to obscure information that, um, that they didn't want people outside the community to have. Can you tell us a little bit about Aboriginal art? Well, absolutely. Um, so Aboriginal art, there's amazing cave art. Um, a lot of art was, um, was performative. There were compositions on people's bodies during, um, during ritual ceremonies. And so you have this transference from all these three-dimensional surfaces onto these two-dimensional surfaces. And, um, and, and all of this is, all of these are, are stories. All of these are, are, are community stories. They're stories of, um, of creation, stories of land and landscapes. And uh, so they're, they're, they're very much for Aboriginal communities, very narrative. Who would have been considered an insider in this community? So an insider, I mean, it might be um, someone within just in a, within a language group or a small family group. Uh, it could be a very small network of people that would understand uh, the stories. Also, when Jeffrey Barton st first started to work with these men in the community, uh, at first the men started to paint stories um, that had sensitive information, community information in it. So it might... Um, be seen as ritually sensitive. And very quickly they started to, um, to either change, you know, change the uh, visualizations so that they didn't contain that, or um, they were also encouraged to paint children's stories, which were more widely available 
to people outside the community. So, um, so most of what, except for maybe some of the very earliest paintings, everything that we see uh, that we would consider Aboriginal art has been created for outsider consumption. Can you talk about the density in the piece from a curator's perspective? So the, um, well, the density, and, and I think I mentioned this artist was one of the first men to, to use these layers, um, surface layers and, and over dotting to conceal. So, um, so the, the layers are, you know, integral to his um, formation of the composition. There are fields of color below the dots. So um, the whole landscape is clear probably to the artist, but to us, um, obviously the density makes it um, hard to discern potentially some of the features of a landscape or some of the aspects of the painting. Can you speak about Chaparula's history? Um, so he was born in one place near this lake, and he did live there as a child, kind of um, in, the, in this desert environment. But later, the family was moved to a mission. And there, you know, he worked as um, a laborer. And um, he was initiated at that time, and then was moved to another location for construction work. And finally, um, you know, I guess it was around the late 50s, he returned or he was moved to um, the settlement of Papunya. And that was a settlement uh, that included people from different language groups. And these were government, uh, forced government settlements. Who is Jeffrey Barden? I think I mentioned that uh, I've been drawing from the work of Judith Ryan, and she's the senior curator of Indigenous Art at the National Gallery of Victoria. She has advised us in the past, and she's certainly one of the experts um, in the world on Aboriginal art. She talks about the early establishment of the Papunya Art, or it's called Papunya Tulia Art Cooperative, and the role of Jeffrey Barton. And um, so she talks about his arrival at the settlement. When he, when he arrived, I think I mentioned that he arrived to work at a school and the school had 14 teachers at that time. And there were about 1300 people residing in the settlement. And he was a young art teacher who was really enthusiastic about teaching the children in the community. And so uh, he started by teaching the children and ended up working really closely with a lot of the adults in the community. And this was the beginning of um, this artist cooperative uh, that, that went on for, you know, it's gone on for, for decades and certainly uh, kind of catapulted Australian Aboriginal art into the marketplace and into the world art scene. What can you say about the colors used? For me, they do mirror the colors that would be used on body painting and other forms of um, ritual painting. So you have ochre, this ochre color, clay, colors that would be um, possible to create from natural sources. So white, you know, people make burnt uh, shells and other materials and then ochre and, and clay. So I, I guess what I see in this painting are colors that would that you do see, um, you have seen, you know, in ritual painting. Would you like to say anything else about children's story? 
for me, what's really compelling is thinking about how uh, three-dimensional artworks become two-dimensional. And so that these compositions, which were on bodies and or actually etched into sand or on the surface of a landscape, then become a two-dimensional composition. So that I think that's really um, compelling. And um, for so many, um, you know, until until the advent of airplanes, um, Aboriginals were making compositions on surfaces without, and they're seeing things from a bird's eye view without ever flying or, or having been in airplanes or, or above the earth. But there's this ability to see the breadth of the landscape in, in such an incredible way, I find really compelling. What you're looking at is a soundsuit by Nick Cave. When I first saw this artwork, I couldn't make out what it was and why the artist made it. To me, this artwork fits perfectly with the theme density because of how busy it is. The artwork itself seems to have metallic textile with explosive colors from purple to green and gray. The artwork also has many eye-catching patterns like small squares, circles that look like eyes, and a pattern that look like a mustache. And what's interesting is that the soundsuit covers the person inside from head to toe, leaving no body parts visible. I'll assume the soundsuit is tall because all the soundsuit cave have made are life-size, and some soundsuits are even 10 feet tall. But do you know that when Cave made his first soundsuit, the meaning behind it was a lot more serious and dark? His first soundsuit is made out of his frustration as a black man in America after the Rodney King's beating. The first sound suit came out of frustration and my sort of concern as a black male in America feeling devalued, discarded, dismissed. It was made out of twigs that he found on the ground. He connected the twigs to Ronnie King's flat body on the ground. When Nick Cave put on the sound suit, it made rustling sounds from the twigs, and he connected to the role of the protest where in order to be heard, you need to speak louder. You can hear them now. We can still go in here. No justice! From then, Nick continued to make many more soundsuit and with some soundsuit referencing the miter hat form and the KKK uniform to show the ideas of power and its abuse. The soundsuit you're looking at seems to reference the miter hat worn by the popes and clergy judging from the shape of the head. Cave transform materials that is often seen as unimportant to represent the experience of being black in America. The reason why the soundsuit covers a person from head to toe is because Cave wanted to conceal gender, race, and class to have the audience see something without judgment. Looking at the soundsuit is interesting, but seeing the soundsuit come to life through movement is even better. Just imagine hearing the rustling sounds the suit makes while seeing this otherworldly figure come to life dancing in front of you. On some occasions, sound suits are worn by dancers to perform for the public. This makes me wonder how it might feel to put on the suit. 
What was it like when you first put on the sound suits? Out of body experience. It's How's like, that? Well, you put on this costume and you become this thing, this like animal almost. To Cave, putting on the sound suit makes you work outside of your comfort zone. And you have to be willing to become this figure when you perform. You know, it's, it frees you from inhibitions and, and, you know, you have this sort of, again, this opportunity to sort of um, work outside of your norm and your comfort zone. And, but it can be tough, very tough. In terms of whether or not you're able to make that transition, I mean, you can't put it on and just remain yourself. You have to be willing to um, transition and become this other thing and whatever that is. After knowing all this information, I have a lot more respect for the artist as he was able to take inspiration from something horrible and turn it into something breathtaking. I wonder what other young people like me have to say. Hello. My name is Christy. I'm 16 years old. What do you think is happening in this artwork? What I think is happening is it's a story that has a lot of ups and downs. And what I mean is that you don't know where it begins. You don't know where it starts. And you obviously won't know what the uprising or the conflict is because there's so many things going on you don't even know where to start looking at you don't know what what you should examine first because there's so many things that you want to look at but it's just everywhere what patterns did you notice first the patterns that i noticed first was kind of the squares of the kind of the squares it kind of pops out like little waffles to me and another design that popped out at me is the big circles like kind of looks like eyeballs kind of looking at me as if it's like a creature of some kind Chrissy and I can both agree that the patterns like small squares and eye-like circles are very striking what about you? What catches your eye when looking at the sound suit? Isn't it amazing how our pieces are literally from different corners of the planet, yet they are all connected because of its visual density? And the cool thing is, they all have a meaning and a reason behind all the rich details, patterns, and embellishments. To displaying wealth, to hiding secret narratives, to creating a world where race and gender don't divide us. There is definitely something to think about in all these artworks.